Hey everyone, a quick message. This is the 10th and final show in the fall season. After this, we'll be taking a break until spring. If you're craving more science history delights before then, check out the Science History Institute's other incredible podcast, Distillations. Or check out the dozens of bonus episodes I've posted at patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. In the meantime, enjoy this episode, and I'll see you in the spring. Oh, and before I start, in case you cannot tell from the title, there is a murder in this story, and this episode contains graphic violence. The landlady opened the closet door and nearly vomited. She had never smelled anything so foul. What had those dirty students left in this bundle of clothing? She had rented the room to the students two weeks earlier. They had seemed like decent fellows and even paid up front. But after they had hauled this bundle of clothing up to the room, they vanished, leaving her to clean up this mess. The landlady sighed. Holding her nose, she picked up the dirty bundle, at which point two severed arms and two severed legs tumbled out. The landlady had just uncovered one of the most sensational murders of 19th century Paris, the slaying of a poor old milkmaid. The case proved sensational not only for the ghastly crime, but for the motivation behind it. Because as strange as it sounds, one of the murderers killed the milkmaid simply to prove something about Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, which in turn raised an urgent question in French society. Was Charles Darwin to blame for this murder? From the Science History Institute, this is Sam Keen and the Disappearing Spoon, a topsy-turvy, sciencey history podcast, where footnotes become the real story. Ami Barre's tastes always outran his budget. Barre was a bearded, 25-year-old stockbroker in Paris who loved spoiling his mistress. He gave her jewelry and designer clothing all the time. But his speculations in the stock market never paid off. He would take money from clients and, instead of investing in sound securities, would gamble on some long shot and lose everything. Then he'd scramble for more clients to make up for the shortfall. He began drowning in debt. That didn't stop R.A. in 1878 from moving to an expensive new apartment near Notre Dame. He kept himself afloat by bleeding his father, a carpenter, for money. But even family love has its limits. His father soon cut his ne'er-do-well son off. A desperate barre resorted to forgery and blackmail. But he was no better at those than he was at picking stocks. Both ventures failed. He did have one hope. Across the street from his apartment, he noticed an old woman named Gelet who sold milk. She had gnarled hands and a scarred left arm. She was also quite thrifty. Neighborhood gossip swore she had 5,000 francs squirreled away, about $15,000 today. Barre heard this figure and began salivating. He approached Gelet and begged for a chance to run her estate. He promised to double her wealth. But he came on a bit strong. Gelet sensed his desperation and refused. A fuming Barre then turned to his friend, 
one Paul Lubier. Lubier was the handsome, 24-year-old son of a photographer. He had first met Barre in school, where Lubier distinguished himself as a brilliant, budding scientist. After school, Lubier took some anatomy courses and applied to join the Navy as a doctor. Before accepting him, the Navy put out feelers about Lubier's character. Although many people regarded him as a warm and happy-go-lucky person, others called him difficult and unruly. He also had a reputation as a political firebrand. Ultimately, the Navy rejected him. Lubier began teaching in Paris instead, but he was soon fired for chronic tardiness. Like his friend Barre, he also ran up several debts. But Lubier differed from Barre in one way. Barre was grubby, materialistic. Lubier had an intellectual streak. And one of his touchstones was Charles Darwin's new theory of evolution by natural selection. Darwin has always been controversial, but he was especially so in France. Part of this was snobbery, the reflexive French disdain for anything English. Catholics and conservatives in France also fretted about how evolution seemed to displace God and undermine traditional morals. Even French scientists split over Darwin. Some of them held a torch for the alternative ideas of biologist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who promoted a looser, use-it-or-lose-it theory of evolution. Other scientists saw Darwin's merit, but hesitated to speak up for fear of being labeled an atheist or a radical. Darwin's support was especially weak among the establishment types who dominated the Auguste French Academy of Sciences. Six separate times before 1878, progressive scientists had nominated Darwin for election to the Academy. And six separate times, Darwin had been voted down. The message was clear. Darwin had no home in France. Paul Lubier, however, adored Darwin, and he was not shy about saying so. Lubier was a firebrand, and he had no career to ruin anyway by speaking up in Darwin's favor. When Lubier heard that Barre was also in financial trouble, the two old school pals commiserated. They actually discussed committing suicide. It seemed like their only option. Then Barre mentioned the old milkmaid and how she had rebuffed his attempts to manipulate her finances. In mentioning her, Barre might simply have been blowing off some steam. But Lubier pounced on Gillet and began denouncing her as a miser. As Lubier said, what right has she to hoard up her gold when others could put it to some use? Lubier considered it the duty of the weak, like Gillet, to give away to the strong, like him. To him, this was simply Darwinism in action. Lubier certainly was not the first person to twist Darwin's theories like this. A decade earlier, the Englishman Herbert Spencer began promoting so-called social Darwinism. Social Darwinism conceived of human life in terms of conflict. Strong people brushing aside the unfit. Powerful nations dominating weak ones. There was no room for pity, no remorse. It was actually Spencer and not Darwin who coined the phrase, survival of the fittest. The flaws in Spencer's thinking are many. Most obviously, human beings are not mere barracuda and chum. We have morals, logic, reasoning. We can cooperate for the greater good. We're certainly no angels, but we can think beyond our immediate needs and rise above a lions versus gazelles mindset. In truth, Darwin provides zero guidance on morals. That's something that we have to figure out ourselves. Nevertheless, some people did twist Darwin's theories into ethical principles. 
Paul Loubier in Paris was one of them. And Loubier soon made a chilling suggestion to his friend Barret. To kill the weak milkmaid Gillet and grab her money for themselves. Barret quickly agreed. Because Barre had met Gillet before, he planned to visit her apartment to dispatch her. Three times he invented some excuse to wheedle his way into her flat. And three times he chickened out. Loubier must have been wondering whether his friend really was one of the strong ones. A chagrined Barre finally agreed to lure Gillet to his apartment instead, so Loubier could help. On March 23, 1878, Barre convinced Gillet to visit him and deliver some milk. She arrived around 10 a.m. Barre let her in with a smile, then smashed her skull with a hammer. After crumpling to the floor, she cried out for mercy. Mercy, however, was for the weak. A lurking Loubier ran up and stabbed her six times in the heart with a stiletto. The squeamish Barre left to ransack Gillet's apartment. Meanwhile, Loubier used his anatomy training to dismember Gillet's body. He packed her head and torso into a trunk and wrapped her arms and legs in some blue blouses that Barre had bought for his mistress. Barre returned from Gillet's apartment with bad news. Neighborhood Scuttlebutt had greatly exaggerated the milkmaid's wealth. Rather than 5,000 francs, Gillet had only 2,000 to her name. Barre then made a proposal that he, who had the bigger debts, keep the lion's share of the loot. He'd give Loubier around 75 francs. Talk about a risky idea. Did he really expect that the cold-blooded Loubier would agree to that? Incredibly, though, Loubier did. Barre pocketed most of the cash. Meanwhile, Loubier walked away from the murder with a modern equivalent of less than $250. Apparently, to him, carrying out his Darwinian duty was reward enough. Have you ever wanted to appreciate books or movies or music from another culture? Do you have a big trip coming up and want to get beyond the tourist spots and immerse yourself in local culture? No matter what the reason, Rosetta Stone is the language program for you. Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Millions have used it. Rosetta Stone knows what works for getting started, remembering what you've learned, and motivating you to stay on track. Plus, the built-in true accent feature gives you live feedback to improve your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. Start today. For a limited time, Disappearing Spoon listeners get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com today. The cover-up was as clumsy as the murder. Loubier and Barre deposited the trunk with a torso and head on a train bound for Le Mans. Then they rented a room from a landlady under a false name and dumped the bundle of clothing with the legs and arms in the cupboard. They chose the room for its proximity to a medical school. They hoped that when the police found the limbs, they would assume that some med students were playing a crass joke, dumping a cadaver there to gin up rumors and scandal. And at first, the police swallowed the bait. 
When the limbs were discovered on April 6, they did assume a prank. But a visit to the medical school revealed that no bodies were unaccounted for. Suspecting something darker now, the police began inquiring about missing people around town. On April 17th, they got a report about Gelée the milkmaid. She had a scar in her left arm that matched the scarred left arm found in the room. From there, things proceeded swiftly. Neighbors told the police that Barre had been hounding Gelée for money. On Good Friday, the police hauled Barre into the station where the landlady identified him. Barre quickly confessed and implicated Lubier. Lubier was in the countryside then, on an excursion to collect tadpoles and frogs to dissect. His deaths notwithstanding, he hoped to purchase a microscope with his blood money and continue his anatomical studies. But the police caught up with him on Easter Sunday and cuffed him. Predictably, the French tabloids ran screaming headlines. It was a real-life Grange Guinot. Respectable French papers exhibited more restraint. And however sordid, the tale probably would have faded from memory, if not for one thing. Word soon got around that, on April 11th, two weeks after the murder, Lubier had given a public lecture on Darwinism and the natural tendency for the strong to dominate the weak. In Lubier's words at the talk, at the banquet of nature, there is not room for all the guests. Each one struggles. The strong push out the weak. Family against family, species against species, a civil war without peace or truce. It was social Darwinism incarnate, and it didn't exactly take Sherlock Holmes to link these sentiments to the recent murder. Lubier was basically laying out his justification, and many in French society saw those words as a golden opportunity. Catholics, conservatives, and their allied newspapers began denouncing Lubier as a heinous criminal. More importantly, they began using him as a cudgel to destroy Darwin and evolution. Far from perverting Darwinism, those newspapers thundered that Lubier had simply followed Darwinism to its logical conclusion. One newspaper called him a puppet intoxicated by the doctrine of his master. Darwinism, they said, was nothing but amoral, might-makes-right nihilism. Society, therefore, had a duty to root out this evil. Rhetorically, this seemed like a strong case. A vocal supporter of Darwin really had killed someone weaker than him for explicitly Darwinian reasons. You can imagine people reading along and nodding. But as the campaign to destroy Darwin picked up momentum, something funny happened. Frankly, most French people then had never heard of Charles Darwin. <laughs> Why would they have? He was just some foreign savant, most of whose published work was about barnacles, worms, and pigeons. Suddenly, though, Darwin was everywhere, in newspapers of all persuasions, and French folks wanted to know more. What was this Darwin brouhaha? So some newspapers began running stories to explain Darwin's theories, especially the more liberal newspapers. Many took pains to avoid distortions and smears. And oddly enough, when everyday people began reading what Darwin actually said, a lot of them decided that it kind of made sense especially when respected scientists began weighing in. Again, many scientists had hesitated to speak up for Darwin before, but the Lubier murder and the public controversy surrounding it forced the scientists to take public stands in meetings and interviews. Thus arose a virtuous cycle. 
The more that common people read about scientists supporting Darwin, the more public opinion shifted in his favor. This made it easier for other scientists to pipe up, which shifted public opinion further, which encouraged more scientists to speak out, and so on. Slowly then, the great tide of public opinion lifted Darwin out of the muck, and it did so in spite of the ongoing negative publicity from the trial of Lubier and Barre. After months of headlines, the trial opened in late July 1878. It lasted just a few days. Cravenly, each of the friends tried to blame the whole mess on the other. So much for being strong. The jury believed neither one of them and swiftly returned a sentence of death. Meanwhile, just four days later, the French Academy of Sciences once again took up the question of whether to elect Charles Darwin a member. His odds did not seem good. Would you support someone accused by the church of providing justification for murder, especially if he was English? Darwin should have been defeated more soundly than ever. But that's not what happened. Despite the murder rap, the seventh time was the charm, and in August 1878, Darwin finally became a member of the prestigious French Academy. The results were not a landslide and the scientists who voted aye justified themselves by muttering that Darwin had done some excellent work in botany. But the timing spoke volumes. The public interpreted the election as a slap to those who'd been disparaging Sir Charles. I'd like to end with this. If something about the Lubier-Barre affair has been tickling your mind, pinging memories of some story that you've heard before, well, you're right. Their story echoes one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written. On September 7, 1878, Lubier and Barre had their heads chopped off with a guillotine, but their story continued to fascinate the public. So in the early 1880s, a French writer named Alphonse Dudet began writing a book about the Lubier-Barre murder. Dudet labored for years on his book, and then abruptly quit in 1884. Why? because the first French translation had appeared of a novel by the Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky. The book's name was Crime and Punishment. Crime and Punishment tells the tale of a struggling young man named Raskolinkov who murders an old lady. He ends up stealing a trifling sum of money from her. But his real motivation was his belief that strong beings like him had a right to exploit the weak. In his deranged morality, Superior types can dispose of lesser beings however they like. The writer Duday read Crime and Punishment and groaned. He realized he could never compete with Dostoevsky's genius. Despite years of investment, he abandoned his book on Lubier and Barre. There's no evidence that Dostoevsky ever heard about the Lubier-Barre murder. It could not have influenced Crime and Punishment anyway, which came out a dozen years earlier, in 1866. But it's hard not to marvel over the coincidence. The idea was apparently in the air. And Dostoevsky himself had wise things to say about Darwin. Like many religious people, Dostoevsky felt uncomfortable with how natural selection displaced God. But he was also intellectually honest enough to see the overwhelming evidence for evolution in nature. Dostoevsky rejected the conservative cant. And given his masterful novel, he certainly would have seen through the sophistry of Lubier as well. He knew that nature's laws are not equal to human laws, and never will be. Again, morality is something we have to figure out 
for ourselves. This is the Disappearing Spoon podcast, brought to you by the Science History Institute. Find out more about their library, museum, and multimedia magazine at sciencehistory.org. Make sure you check out the Science History Institute's other awesome podcast, Distillations. You can find their in-depth narrative stories and interviews about everything from space junk to sex, drugs, and migraines anywhere you get your podcast and on their website distillations.org. You can find more incredible stories from my books at samkeen.com. You can also book me as a speaker at your school or event. If you like this podcast, please support it at patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. It costs as little as seven cents per day. You can also get bonus episodes and signed books. Please spread the word to others as well and subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or other places. This episode was written by me, Sam Keen. It was mixed by Jonathan Pfeffer and produced by Mariel Carr and Rigoberto Hernandez. Thanks for listening.